So today I'm joined by Audrey Aridonis from Miami Homes for All. What makes this nonprofit organization a little bit unique than most is that they're really the ones behind the scenes making a sustainable impact on homelessness. How they do this is that they tackle homelessness with a bird's eye view approach by shaping policies that create affordable housing and also emphasize helping the youth suffering from homelessness. So all based around helping homelessness in the future as well. And that is actually Audrey's specialty, which you'll hear a lot about today. Her and I just could not put the conversation down. So I actually split this up into two parts. And here is part one. So let's do it. Too many days in the darkness. Hi, Audrey. How are we doing today? It's so um, nice to finally uh, have you come on the podcast and um, talk about all the amazing work that you guys do. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, yeah. And you, um, you're the vice president of programs for Miami Homes for All. That's right. All right. I'd, I'd love to just do a complete, just deep dive and um, get to know the program, what you guys do, and then also your own personal story as well. Um, you know, what made you want to get into the field and then also to, uh, you know, where do you see yourself? Yeah. So Miami Homes for All, formerly known as the Miami Coalition for the Homeless, um, you know, MHFA started back in the, in the eighties, right? Um, in Miami, in Miami. Okay. Imagine let's go back. Let's think about eighties, Miami, you know, I'm talking Golden Girls. I'm thinking Scarface, Scarface yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> I thought <laughs> totally different uh, media, but you know, um, you know that 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 was what's happening in Miami-Dade County. You know, there was a lot of things going on in the '80s. There were a lot of issues with homelessness and, yeah. um, you know, a lack of affordable housing. There were a lot of people coming in here, and so to address that, the Miami Coalition for the Homeless came to be. There were a lot of issues around the criminalization of homelessness um, well into the 90s as well. Um, actually, in Lummis Park, you know, not that far from here where we are in downtown yeah. Miami, there were, you know, what, what would happen was they would just gather all people's like items, you know, people experiencing homelessness, bring them to the park, set it on fire. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and or just arrest people for just living their lives. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the a lot of our advocacy came out of that point, you know, because what we wanted to do was how do we prevent and end homelessness in our community? And so with that, a lot of policies came through, legal decisions, all these different things. And, you know, now we have the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust and other agencies to address homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the early to mid-2000s, you know, yes, we have the system now to address homelessness, but what about affordable housing? You know, if we look at the data right now, 
250,000 households are at risk of homelessness. And, you know, this was pre-COVID-19. Yeah, not even homeless, like at risk. Yeah, at not risk. even including exactly, the, the homeless. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, when we think about how many people are currently experiencing homelessness in our system, there are about 8,000 people, right, being served by the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust continuum yeah. of care. And so what we're seeing is there's this huge issue. And how do we get to that? How do, how do we all have boring conversations about <laughs> affordable housing, about pay, about building more units, about working together? How do we get that to happen? So at MHFA, we said, all right, let's get the data together. Let's convene all of our different partners and let's you know, have these conversations and push for the best policies forward. So that way we're helping our most vulnerable residents. And when I say vulnerable, I'm thinking about you know, people that are most at risk of homelessness. Due to systems of oppression and poverty, you know, who are those people? These are people that, that are uh, black or brown. Um, these are people that identify as LGBTQ+. These are, young, are people with disabilities. These are the people that I'm talking about that we must serve. That are oftentimes ignored, um, not brought to the table, and frankly, not listened to, right? Yeah, and I, I think, I think a, li- a little bit of that, too, is just, um, you know, there's no, like, true voice for, for, for the homeless. Absolutely. You know, like, I go um, and walk in the park in... Um, um, on the bay right by uh, the arena. And that's basically a well-known area where homeless just lay out at night and sleep. And the only times they're kind of checked up on is in the mornings. And I was talking to um, one of the gentlemen who does stay there in the evenings and a police car pulled in and he had told me that that guy is really there just to kind of shake everybody to see if they're still moving and, Mm. and, and alive. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, that's that just is such a horrible um, – I don't want to say open secret, but um, everybody knows that that goes on. And I think about the gentleman I was speaking to and, you know, who is, you know, fighting for him. You know, things right. get done when somebody else says, no, like, you, you have to stop this and, and fights for somebody else. And with homeless, I just feel like because they don't – there's nothing they can give um, to to somebody to help, so there's nobody there for them because it's not like there's no transaction almost. Right. I don't want to say that in a in a bad way, but um, there's there's nothing that you can really gain from from helping a homeless person other than just maybe you know the good feeling, the good vibe that you get, you know, giving them food or money. Um, but from their own standpoint. You know who's there consistently, other than you know obviously you guys and and other organizations, and I think that's kind of it. Just maintains them where they are, right? You and know? so it's like a ceiling, exactly. Like something that we want to figure out is what are some long term solutions? How do we have more housing that is available to everyone, and you know, and fight the nimbyism, right? Not in my backyard. Like when we think about having more affordable housing in different areas, or okay. Let's let's unpack affordable housing in the first place because I think when when people think affordable housing they think it's like really bad buildings or public housing that are not like have yeah, bad poor reps, construction right? and that's not that's not what yeah. it is it just literally means that people can afford to live there the the, the truth of the matter fact the, the truth of it is that 
people should not be spending more than 30% of their income on rent. I can tell you most of everyone is definitely spending more than 30% Mm. of their income on rent or mortgage or whatever. And so let's, let's just think about who's working in, in our community for a waiter, you know, which are, Hospitality business here is huge for anyone doing, you know, truck driving or um, an office assistant. They should not be spending more than eight hundred dollars a month on rent. I don't know about it's you. It's almost like nearly impossible yes, to I do. You know, could yeah. never find anything eight hundred dollars or real. That's the, that's the reality of what the market is like here. Like yeah. there's there's little to no affordable housing options, and when there is, you know, it's a shack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in someone's backyard, it's probably an illegal like uh, efficiency or something. And there's not even a kitchen. And, you know, these are things that we need to unpack a little bit. And even then, like, you know, there's not even enough affordable housing for teachers. You know, the, the truth of the matter, you know, the truth of it is that teachers get paid, I think, like 45,000, 50,000 a year. Right. And, you know, can you. Can they find even affordable units just for teachers? No. Um, so there needs to be a lot more conversations around, you know, pay, around rent, around mortgage. Like, how do we make this community a bit more equitable? Um, I think those are some of the hard conversations that we need to have and we're starting to have. I mean, we've been starting to have these conversations, but how do we continue them and actually get them to happen? Um yeah, so. yeah, it's a it's a good point too that you bring up because uh, when housing prices increase, a lot of the time the residents would ask, "Well, if my rent is going up, you know, what am I getting? Is there an extra service that's coming along with the building? Um, are we adding more staff?" And ninety nine point nine percent of the time is no, right? You know, unless you live in a condo and it's getting reassessed because you know they're adding an addition or no- another amenity, and then they go, okay, well, my rent just went up, say, 8 to 10%. My salary probably went up 3%. And there's a big jump there. And, and say that that's one year. Now you take that one year, go mm-hmm. three years, five mm-hmm. years, 10 years. Now you're getting into trouble. You know, you're, right. you're, you really are for that, that same unit. And it's, it's tough because there's, probably a lot of different approaches to, to try to keep that where when housing prices rise, especially teachers, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, they probably work public schools too um, and get paid by taxpayer, you know, funded um, schools to where maybe we try to be reflective of their pay with the general market of housing, you know, because I really doubt that housing is going to incre- uh, decrease or be less than 3%, which is, I think, their normal amount of uh, raise that they would get. So I think that that would be maybe a good start, but there's probably so many different avenues and approaches. You might have a, have a couple ideas, too, that you guys have brought to maybe some local you know, politicians or, or what so, just to kind of present as maybe we can do this or... Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, at MHFA, we, you know, we do a lot of work. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we have like three different, you know, we have two initiatives, the Greater Miami Housing Alliance and mm. the Homie Collective Helping Our Miami-Dade Youth. And through both coalitions, we bring forth different policies, whether it's to improve services to address youth homelessness or whether it's actual policies to address 
and prevent, you know, to address affordable housing and to prevent homelessness. So, um, for example, we work with Miami Workers Center and other um, partners and Community Justice Project to um, push for policies to prevent eviction, right? And what does this mean? Like, you know, we're so glad for the county creating a new eviction ombudswoman position and eviction advocate office, these sorts of things to support people, you know, right now that are in need. Uh, but when it comes to actually getting affordable housing out there, we want to make sure that we have an affordable housing trust fund that works. We want to make sure that we have, um, you know, we preserve affordable housing in our community, that we have more home ownership opportunities, right? And so these are just some of the things that we're working on through um, the Greater Miami Housing Alliance um, that we want to to work on. And I'm so glad you brought up, you know, why people are kind of struggling to afford housing. That's a little bit about what I went through growing up. So, um, you know, when we first moved here to the States, you know, we, we came here. My, my dad's an engineer, right? So he's, you know, he you would think, you know, this is someone that could, you know, make it here, right? And my mom, you know, was... Especially a, coming here with that skill set. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. My dad was, you know, he's in a... was. He's here. He's here. Okay. <laughs> he, is an, he is an electric engineer, right? And then my mom, you know, she's she was a um, um, a hospitality worker. And so coming here into this country, we, you know, we came here from the Caribbean, um, which is also a little expensive. You know, we, I, I, you know, I spent my early childhood in the Cayman Islands. So coming here, my parents were like, okay, we can make it here. We can, yeah. we can do things here. And it was such a struggle when people have to think about like immigration, about um, getting your papers right, about getting, you know, just getting everything prepped and ready. You know, we were in Brickell. Um, and so if, if any of your listeners remember what Brickell used to look like, you know, back in the 2000s, like early 2000s and 90s, it's not what it looks like today. It's very different. Um, it was kind of a rough neighborhood, right? And so growing up there, we literally moved, I want to say, three or four times um, within three, like within two years. Because I mean, how big was your family? It's only, it was only the four of us. It was my, my mom, my dad, my sister, and me. And Moving four times or a was, couple times with four people is a lot. Though. It was yeah. a lot. And, you know, it was because it just, the rent just go, kept going up and up and up because, you know, the, the, the properties were just being sold and then literally one day it's like, okay, you know, the, the unit used to cost like $800, $900. I can't remember. And, um, like a one bedroom apartment, <laughs> you know, and then next yeah. thing you know, it's like, oh, now it's like a thousand something. Um, and we were like just trying to like plant our roots here. Right. And so it, it was quite the struggle, like moving around so much and we just could not afford to live in the city of Miami at, at that point. Um, and now when I go back, you know, driving around Brickell, it's like, you know, I used to live right there and now it's the Soma. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot different. It's so different. And I think about, you know, I went to Southside Elementary. Um, that school itself is so different compared to how it used to be. There's just so many like things are, are very different in the community. But now when I look at the composition of the community, it's also very different. And so that's something I'm passionate about addressing. How do we preserve our communities, you know, to be, you know, one, I want to make sure that there is, first of all, I think what's happening, what happened in Brickell, you know, could, you know, there was no stopping it, right? I think it was a good thing, you know, having a better, you know, um, better environment 
you know, better housing, you know, more transportation, you know, the free trolley. Amazing. I wish I had that growing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I know, know. That, um, that's so clutch. Right. You know, it's so many different things that I think could have been so amazing for me growing up, but it wasn't right. Yeah. How do we make sure that these opportunities that are now being in this, that are now in this community, uh, for a more well-off, you know, population, how could we make sure that other people have the same thing? And so I think that's why I really wanted to join MHFA when I, you know, graduated, you know, this was, this was like my first gig after college. I went, you know, I was an organizer for a bit and then I came to MHFA, you know, I was really attracted to making real policy changes because, you know, I think about what I went through growing up and because, you know, I think we talked about this before. Being poor is expensive, okay? Like, yeah, the reality is be, when, you're, when you don't have much, you know, Brickle at the time, you know, there was only one grocery store. But when you have a family of four, you know, you want to go to Costco to get all the things that you need. You know, to get to Costco, it was kind of far. You had to drive. And then, you know, we didn't have a functioning car, so taking the bus there. And you need a big car exactly. to carry all the groceries. Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't think about that. And then when you think about childcare expenses – um, you know, uh, and when you have to think about electricity and all these things and safety, like, you know, in our, in our unit, we, you know, it was basically a slum, you know, we, you know, we, there was, there was, the building was not taken care of, you know, um, and it was, it, it, there was just a lot of things that we, that we had to pay on our own. You know, there was no washer dryer. And so we, yeah, cause it needs to get done and to reach out to the landlord. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so there were just a lot of things that I think pe- a lot of people don't realize that when you, when, when you're experience, when you're, you know, when you're pinching pennies, people don't realize that it's really hard to, to sustain. There's a really good show on Netflix right now that kind of dismantles this a little bit and thinks about how poverty impacts the whole family and how, you know, not only impacts like, you know, living situations, but also the emotions of the family. It's called Made. Um, it's a really interesting show to kind of show like how hard it is, you know, to live in this country without without many resources. And so, you know, growing up like that, I realized, you know, I want to do something to change um, one the perception of what it looks like. Because I think a lot of a lot of times when people think of people experiencing homelessness or poverty or whatever, you know, you just got to pick yourself up from the bootstraps, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, nah, dude, <laughs> like why, like why is this happening in the first place? You know, is it because people aren't, you know, picking themselves up or is it because there's literally systems in place that are limiting them and forcing them to live in these conditions? Yeah, it's, it, there's, there's definitely degrees of that, you know, it, um, I'd love to get your your thoughts on on this too, to where the pick them up with their bootstraps. That's that's kind of like the the, tra- the traditional mm-hmm. sayings, and just trying to get back out there and keep it going. But it is it is tough because you know if you do have that career, then you get that three percent raise, but that eight percent rent increase. What more can you do exactly. if, if you're exactly. putting in putting in forty to sixty hours a week, and then when your kids get older? Well, what do you do? You stay home with them. Do you go to work? Can you even afford to stay home with them? And then if you're at work, now you have kids that are kind of being independent, maybe before they're ready to be independent, which also creates a lot of possibilities of them being at risk of certain things, especially growing up in a city. And I think um, I, I do. I do think, and I want to get your thoughts on this. 
because I think you guys help organize this to a degree as well, which I think is a great way to reach that goal of sustainability with with uh, you know the housing crisis, which is some financial education on top of maybe some help of course. for people getting um, rent, rental assistance too. Because I always think, you know, if we were to take say go outside if there's a homeless person and just and we give them you know that house the roof if they do want it to and and you know they're they're trusting too because i've learned from speaking with homeless people they are very distrusting sometimes of people approaching them and and kind of telling them you're there to help and so too and and it's um i've I've learned that I've learned yeah, that first yeah. I mean when we think about like when you know again going back to 80s 90s and all these different things so when we think about public housing in the 90s you know it's very different now um you know a, a person I truly admire is Trinice Bryant you know she um you know there was a public housing uh, some units called Carver and those units, you know, there was like, okay, here's this housing, you know, you're living here. And the next thing you know, it's like, okay, you got to get out because we're going to, you know, uh, rebuild it. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it's like, you know, I don't blame people for not trusting, you know, systems because, you know, when, when they do trust the system, it's like, okay, well now, you know, let me take this all away from you. Yeah. Um, you know, I've met people experiencing homelessness. And when I ask them, you know, why did you leave the shelter? why did you leave this housing program? Um, and they look at me and they say, it wasn't a good program. You know, I, I was in this program and you were forcing me to do these things. And, you know, everyone is so different, right? And so how do we customize different services? And, you know, so to your point, we have this Youth Voice Action Council. So this is a group of young people who lived experience of homelessness. And so I facilitate this group. And what we do is we, one, provide them leadership development and help them, you know, they, they're the ones that advocate for themselves and for the, the coalition itself, the Homie Collective. They're an amazing group of young people. But we wanted to layer that with, as you said, workshops on, you know, financial literacy. You know, this year we partnered a lot with TD Bank and other uh, entities to kind of talk about credit, right? you know, cause our young people, you know, they, you know, I, I mean, I was like this too. When I was young, I got a credit card and I was like, okay, I'm going to get an iPhone. I'm going to get this. Like I'm going to get thousand dollars. <laughs> exactly. <me>. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Ooh, look at this, you know, and you know, getting student loans. I'm like, Ooh, I have, I have this free money, financial aid. Okay, cool. I'm going to like buy all these things. I'm going to buy myself a car. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, what, what did I do to myself? Yeah. Putting that on a credit card exactly. was like 25%. I know. Oh, <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, thinking back um, to that, you know, our, our, you know, we we provide these financial literacy workshops so that way they understand what they're walking into. Um, and so, I think it's really important that you know, and that's all a part of housing first, right? That's the best practice and a model that all of us should be using, and that we use here in Miami Dade County is, you know, when you're giving someone a unit, you know, let's layer that with, you know, cooking. You know, how to cook for yourself, um, how to, how to budget, how to do this, how to do that, how to clean. Cause, um, there's, there's this really great program. I think it's, um, uh, Coalition Lift. It's this really interesting model, um, that Car Force Supportive Housing does. And they've basically taken folks that have been, um, that, are, that are, have been part of various systems, the homeless system, jails, hospitals, and they've given them, Hey, here's a key to a unit. 
you go here, you're living here, this is yours. No strings attached, you go, but we're going to help you. You know, we're going to give give you all that you need to live in this unit. And I believe the pilot program had about 48 tenants. And out of all 48 that lived there for a year, I think only one tenant was evicted uh, because that one tenant, you know, was, was I believe they were violent against another uh, tenant. So that's a pretty successful program. Yeah, so, I would say so. For yeah. Sure. And so that means that th- that model works. So to your point, it's, you know, how do we make sure everyone has a, a housing, but then layer that with services and support? Um, I think we can definitely accomplish that, especially now in the city of Miami when, you know, unfortunately, um, some commissioners have put forth a policy that would criminalize people experiencing homelessness. This model proves that we can really solve the issue of homelessness if we all get our brains together and say, hey, let's let's. Let's build more housing. Let's or let's repurpose some housing. There are so many. I mean, let's take a look around Miami. There are so many buildings here that can be rehabbed um, and worked on and given to folks that really need it. And then we just layer that with some support. And I think we can really address homelessness in our community. I mean, obviously, I'm very idealistic. That I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure someone's listening (laughs) to this. No, but that that (laughs) makes sense though because it's you know it's it's functional. You know, you're you're providing them housing but at the same time that support that they will absolutely need and i think that that's also an easy sell to taxpayers too when they go oh well that person's getting you know maybe it's free rent or maybe it's you know a a stipend but then at the same time the response is you know they're they're also getting help as well so that person He's not going to be sleeping on the bench in front of your apartment right. anymore because they're actually going to now function society, have a job, also now start paying taxes, and now we've gotten them into the economy. Now, exactly, you know? and I think it's important that people realize that you know a lot of times when people are—I mean, I'm sure any of us have been through this—when something really traumatic or horrible happens, you don't want to do anything. For a while. I mean, I know I'm like this. When I'm really stressed, all I want to do is watch Lord of the Rings and eat popcorn. <laughs> yeah, you're shot. You're you know, shot. I, yeah. I don't want to do anything. I just want to like sit here and eat popcorn all day and not do anything. And when you've been through trauma after trauma after trauma, you know, I've, I've met folks experiencing homelessness and, you know, they've shared with me their personal stories about how, you know, I'll share one story in particular about one of our youth that, you know, she, you know, I'm going to call her Mary for the purposes of this conversation. Mary, you know, when I first met her, you know, case managers would tell me, she's a problem. No, you know, you can't really help her. She doesn't want to help herself. And I was like, nah, dude, I'm pretty sure there's something else going on here. For sure. And she told me her story about when she was around two or three, her mom, um, you know, she, her mom, unfortunately, had a mental breakdown and, you know, they took her away, um, had to, she's now still in an assisted living facility, has never left. And her and five of her, and all, all five of her siblings had to move in with her aunt. Her father left her mom, which is, which led to her mom's breakdown. Um, she's never met her father, you know, barely knows her mom. And she's basically been raised by her aunt and they lived in a house, I think it was a 3-2, um, you know, not too far from here in the city of Miami, a 3-2 house. There were about 15 people living in that house. Oh, wow. And this was a single aunt 
single mom raising, you know, her kids, her sister's kids. It's like a foster home yeah, at that point. Almost, yeah. Almost, right? And you know, not fifteen, I'm sorry. I took I think I think it was like ten or eleven, almost fifteen. I think I, I rounded up. <laughs> um <laughs> and so there were a lot of people living in that house, but you know, and it caused so much tension. And, you know, in school, you know, because of everything going on in her home life, she felt very ashamed about what she was going through. She didn't really make many friends. Her teachers just, you know, uh, she also has a learning disability, so her teachers kind of gave up on her. Um, and so she felt like everyone ignored her for most of her life. But she had such passion and drive to help others. And when I met her, you know, she struggled communicating her thoughts and her feelings because it's like, you know, she's been let down so many times, you know, her own family or, you know, her aunt kicked her out like on and off <laughs> throughout yeah. her whole childhood. Um, and so, you know, she, she just felt like she couldn't trust anyone. And so whenever someone would help her, she would push back and she would, you know, fight against them. Like, oh, you don't really want to help me. You're, you're, you're not really there for me. So, which is why a lot of case managers were like, she's a lost cause. And it's like, no, she's not. And so. I was, and I don't think there's any like youth that you can actually say it's a lost cause right. because they're just, there's so much potential in exactly. regardless. And honestly, what, what, what it took was, I was like, you know what, Mary, let's go and let's go have lunch. Sat her down. Talk to me. What is going on? And then she just told me everything about her life. And she was like, no one has ever listened to me before. And I think, you know, this is just one case, but I think that goes for everyone. I think everyone just wants to be listened to. Nobody wants to be ignored. And, this, you know, this goes back to your point earlier that a lot of people feel like their voices are not heard. So how can we expect to solve a problem if we don't even know what the problem is? If we're not even listening to what the problem could be. Yeah, you can't. Exactly. You know? And so with her, you know, I asked her, what is it that you need to thrive? She was like, I need a job. Um, I need a place to live. And I just need to learn how, how to do things. And I was like, okay, let's do that. And, you know, she was connected to Educate Tomorrow, which is a um, education um, agency here, you know, she was connected to Miami Day College and, you know, we connected her to Citrus Health Network to get into a housing program, to get a voucher. And right now she's working for the U.S. Post Office. She is, you know, she's about to graduate from Miami Day College with her AA. You know, she has her own apartment. Um, she is thriving. And all it took was just listening. That's all it took. And saying, hey, you can do this. And every time she felt like she was dropping the ball, I was like, uh-uh, you're not allowed to drop the ball. You can do this. <laughs> you know, so I think it's just a combination of listening and motivating someone. And I just hope that other people recognize that. I mean, just like how for us, like, you know, when we think about uh, people experiencing homelessness, a lot of times it's because they don't have a support system and and because there's no system in place for affordable housing or for them to access help. And so... I think even for you and me, right? Like you have your family in Jersey. I have my family here. When I was going through it, my family was like, Audrey, get your shit together. Sorry. Yeah. Hold on. Get your stuff together. You can say shit. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. yeah. And so like, um, I'm surprised I haven't slept one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's like, Audrey, get your shit together and you know, get this done and we're going to be there for you and we're going to help you. And I was like, okay, I can do that. 
do this. So yeah, I yeah. think that's I think that's really all. I mean, I, I know I'm it, oversimplifying it, the problem, yeah. but and that and somebody just saying that to you as you're dwindling down, it just puts a floor right there as right. you're falling, and then boom, you hit it. You're like, all right, like I'm gonna get up, keep walking, and you know it's it stopped that fall down. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that's what we need to do with affordable housing. We just Honestly, I just want to like get everyone in a room and say, get your shit together, everyone. <laughs> uh, and let's make these policies work. Mm-hmm. Like how much money do we need to get 200,000 households up online? Because that's what we need. We just need 200,000. That's oh, Sorry, I'm just hurting myself. We just need 200,000 um, units, right? Well, I mean, we probably need more. But base minimum, how do we get 200,000 units offline, online right now? How do we get that done? Do we need... Do we need um, more affordable housing? Do we need um, to, how do we incentivize developers to work on this? How do we incentivize landlords to recruit people experiencing um, um, housing instability? How do we, you know, work together on this issue? I think a lot of people think affordable housing is too complex. There's a stigma to it too. Yeah, but it really isn't. It's not that complex of an issue. It's not that crazy of an issue. It literally just means that everyone can afford to live here. Because at the end of the day, you know, when we think about our economy, you know, what do we want to look like? Do we want to, you know, how do we want our economy to be? Do we want everyone, I mean, if we we want to be like super annoying and American, you know, do we really want everyone to have the American dream? Yes. Okay. So let's do that. How do we get everyone to um, be able to thrive in this country? Because right now, like barely anyone here in Miami-Dade County is really doing, you know, well, right? Um, You know, the, the... here in our community, I think we're like eighty percent renters. I think. Yeah, I'm and and sure. even even the the condos right. are, are mainly people who just buy it and then rent it out. There's a couple condos in right in downtown where, you know, I look at them and I'm like, well, that's a rental building, right? <laughs> you know, even right. though it's a condo building, because there's just everyone. You know, you can as a landlord, you can make a lot of money off of renting it, and then you know, not even to bring up the airbnb that oh, with geez. that taking off it's just <laughs> and everybody in miami you you say the word airbnb and it's just they want to throw up <laughs> including me i'm just kidding i'm kidding <laughs> um and so you know you know to your point i think when we, we just we we have a renter community here how do we how do we have more opportunities for home ownership and how do we attract people to that because, you know, even with the youth that I work with, I'm like, do you, any of you think that you'd want to buy a home in the future? All of them are like, nah, it's not worth it. Really? Yeah. It, and it's, it's so interesting to me. And, you know, not just our youth, but many people feel that same way. Um, so then how do we pivot out of that? And how do we change the homeowner, you know, our youth, you know, some of my youth, when I ask them, like, would they be interested in in buying a home in the future? Or like, and what age are we 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 talking? Um, eighteen to twenty four, sixteen to twenty four. Oh wow, yeah. that's like premier age to be like, right, right. This is the opportunity to go and buy a home to save up your money, right? Um, and they're like, no, never want to buy a house. I'm just like, why? And it's like, well, you know, it's gonna get foreclosed on, you know, because there's a lot of distrust from the two thousand eight crisis, right? You know, some of our youth, they experienced those foreclosures growing up. 
and they, you know, one of, one of the youth, I'm going to call her, I'm going to, I'm going to call her Jeanette. Call her Mary if you want it yeah. again. <laughs> oh, here's Mary number two. And so Mary number two, you know, she told me her first experience of homelessness was when her house was foreclosed upon. Um, she was about, um, 10 or 11 when the foreclosure crisis hit in 2008 and her family just could not recover. Um, and so they left their home, were experiencing homelessness. They went from shelter to shelter. And at that point, you know, you know, years later, you know, let's say two years ago, I was like, you know, you know, let's talk about homeownership. Are any of you interested one day? And they were like, no, why? And Mary number two was like, I would never be interested in that because then it's setting me up for failure. I can't trust the banks. I can't trust a lending agency. I can't trust this. And it's like, where have we, you know, where, you know, and so these are things that we need to be thinking about um, in the affordable housing space. Why is it that people don't want to buy homes? Why, why is it that people don't want to, um, you know, do, you know, do more than renting or why is it that people want to just focus on renting, um, you know, and, and then spending exorbitant amounts of money on rent and not address their yeah. well-being. And with with Mary number two, do you think um, do you think that that's more so em- emotion? Oh, of getting course. out of her. Yeah, I was, I was, I was gonna course. I was gonna say I'm thinking if she was you know around maybe eight to ten or you're you know younger than twelve during the housing crisis in '08, experiencing that, I'm sure that did take a take a toll on her and i was thinking maybe she's just waiting to express that and just there's such a bad experience involved with that to where it's like if somebody was almost drowning in in the ocean and then a couple of years goes by you ask them do you want to go swimming again they're going to just instantly say no no right. no e- even though you know maybe you just put your feet in a little bit that's exactly it. and i think i think too because i know people who do very well for themselves and they don't own just yet. They're, they're still renting. And I, and I think that just having that conversation with them to, to bring an awareness to like, you can actually own something. You could probably go out right now. There's probably a neighborhood within 45 minutes of where you live to where you can probably purchase something right now with maybe an FHA, um, putting, putting minimum down. And I think, it's it's a little bit, for lack of a better word, um, lack of knowledge of or belief in themselves. Maybe they just think of, well, people who own homes are like super super rich, super wealthy, or they, you know, maybe they have large sums of money. And I don't know if if they actually believe in themselves that they could actually do it. Right, and, and I think that's exactly what's going on. And, um, you know, when when we think about housing, you know, it's I think a lot of people are just scared of it for some reason. Um, yes, there's like a fear. You a, could, yeah, exactly. There's a fear of having affordable housing, and there's a fear of actually getting housing um, across the spectrum, right? You know, people that you know, okay, like you know, some people might think you know we don't really need affordable housing. People just need to do better, right? You know, there's a fear there. Like, why why are you scared of having like a mixed income neighborhood? you know, what's going to happen, you know, like yeah. nothing, nothing horrible is going to happen. Um, Especially if you're in a, if you're in a inner city too, where it just, there's 
buildings all over the place that do a million different things. It's, exactly. You know, you go one block over and then there's super rich condos and then there's homeless people. It doesn't really. It, it makes no sense to me as to how we can't all work together. Right. And so there's this fear I, and I, I don't really know where it comes from, but I think a lot of constituents and um, elected officials um, are fearful, maybe fearful of having these kinds of conversations around housing. And I think a lot of residents um, a, a per, you know, m- maybe a lot of renters, you know, I'm, I don't know the data, but maybe a lot of renters are scared of owning a property or, um, you know, becoming an owner or, 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 or even like going, going outside of what they know. Right. And so right now I've been, we've been working on cases where we do door to door outreach and some of the conditions that some of our residents are living in are absolutely horrible. Um, but then they stay there and then it's like, okay, wh- why don't we help you do relocation? Well, I'm not going to find anything better than this. Like, yes, you can. You deserve that. And you probably will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, you deserve so much better. Like, let's, let's help you do that. You know, and it, it's, it's so interesting that, um, you know, here, I don't know what it is, but I think there's, I don't know if you've experienced this in other cities that you've been in, but it's, it's this fear of the unknown of, of housing in general. Um, and I don't know where it comes from. And I think that's some of the com- everyday conversations that we have um, with our partners sometimes. Like, how do we, how do we create more like policies that are equitable in our community? And then when we have conversations with, um, you know, people with power or stakeholders and it's like, oh, um, I don't know if we should have this right now. I can tell you right now that sometimes when we try to have meetings with folks, people don't want to meet with us. And it's like, why? Why are you scared of us? Like, were we, you know, like what, what's going on here? And so it, it's really interesting sometimes to kind of see how that all works out. Um, yeah, it's it's when you do meet with those folks, do you sense that they already have an intention already made up? Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. I think, um, you know, I think you know everyone comes to the table with their own perspective, right? And so everyone's coming to the table of what they think is the solution to affordable housing um, without centering the resident. And I think that's the issue, right? I think something that we focus on at MHFA, let's go back to the resident. Um, We have this resident engagement task force. uh, We work with grassroots partners and we always ask them, what what are the needs from residents? What are they saying? And, you know, we engage with residents directly. I engage with our youth directly. And they say, hey, like, what is it? Like, what are the things that we need to be thinking about and looking at? Um, and our residents and our community are having a totally different conversation to what others are saying in our community. So it's really interesting. So how do we um, bring those communities together? And I think we have been pretty successful in doing that through our eviction task force, you know, our our many of our renters have said, hey, like, we want to make sure that, um, you know, we have an eviction advocate office, that we have someone at the county that we can talk to directly if we have any questions. Um, and that we worked with my worker center and others to actually to make that happen. And it's happening. And I think those are really good things. So I think when we when we think about affordable housing, I think that's, that's, that's more of what we need to do. And, you know, we also have an initiative for public land for public good. How do we utilize publicly owned land for the community, whether it's the Alapata Library or whether it's, um, you know, utilizing public land to build more housing, you know, whatever it may be, how do we um, have these conversations? And our residents have spoken. 
So what we try to do at MHFA is always uplift what our residents are saying and centering their voices. Because you're speaking for them. Right. Respectively. And, yeah. and, you know, and they, they also speak for themselves. Like we, we partner with them to go speak at commission meetings or to speak with stakeholders. And they're the ones leading those conversations. And we're just saying, hey, yeah, what they said, here's the policy to make it happen. Um, our Youth Voice Action Council, they create, they recently had in July the Homie Summit. And at the Homie Summit, they presented different advocacy projects that they know could work. Uh, one of those really cool projects is creating a shared data system between our different partners, uh, which I think would be a really interesting thing to happen. So basically what this means is um, the homeless trust, the hospitals, the jails, uh, domestic violence, they're all communicating with each other and saying, hey, let's re- make these referrals easier. Thanks for tuning in today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. On part two, Audrey really gets into the specifics of the youth programs that she helps operate and facilitate in order to help youth homelessness. And me and her also get into a great discussion regarding the generational differences in home ownership between millennials, Gen Zs, and baby boomers and the reasons why. So hope to see you then.